Welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Camparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, May 9th through Saturday the 11th feature Ricardo Muti and the orchestra joined by Mitsuko Uchida. The program includes the Marriage of Figaro Overture by Mozart as well as the composer's Piano Concerto No. 20. After intermission, all Stravinsky, divertimento from The Fairy's Kiss and a suite from The Firebird Ballet. Here are Philip Huscher's program notes on Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 20, a work lasting about 32 minutes. This is the Mozart Piano Concerto that Beethoven admired above all others. It's the only one he played in public and the only one for which he wrote cadenzas. Throughout the 19th century, it was the sole concerto by Mozart that was regularly performed. Its demonic power and dark beauty spoke to musicians who had been raised on Beethoven, Chopin, and Liszt. When it was fashionable to dismiss Mozart as an outdated composer with fussy manners and empty charm, this score brought people to their senses. It's surely one of the most celebrated pieces ever written, almost as much myth as work of art, as Charles Rosen put it. Mozart and Beethoven met for the first time in 1787, two years after this concerto was premiered in Vienna. Beethoven wanted to study with Mozart. He may even have had a few lessons with him at the time. But it wasn't until 1792, the year after Mozart's death, that Beethoven settled in Vienna, and so he ended up studying with Haydn instead finding little comfort or truth in Count Waldstein's famous prophecy that he would receive Mozart's spirit from Haydn's hands. As a favor to Mozart's widow, Costanza, and as a tribute to the composer he most admired, Beethoven played Mozart's D minor concerto between the acts of La Clemenza di Tito at a memorial performance on March 31, 1795, no doubt improvising that night the famous cadenza that he later wrote down. Mozart's own cadenzas have not survived, although they are mentioned in one of his father's letters. At these performances, Shai Wozner plays Beethoven's cadenza in the first movement and his own in the finale. And by the way, about that Beethoven concert in 1795, it's the only time Beethoven is known to have played one of Mozart's concertos in public, although he was certainly well acquainted with others, and particularly like the one in C minor. It's easy to understand what attracted Beethoven, as well as later 19th century musicians, to this concerto. It belongs to a handful of works by Mozart that suggested he was the earliest great romantic composer. This is the first concerto in a minor key, in itself an unusual forward-looking choice. Like the terrifying chords that opened Don Giovanni and later when Don Juan is dragged down to hell, or the Lacrimosa from the Requiem, the last music Mozart wrote, the concerto established D minor as the darkest of keys and seemed at first almost to exhaust its tragic potential. The opening, with its syncopated, throbbing D minor chords, is not about theme or harmony so much as gesture and tension. 
Like much truly dramatic music, it's ominously quiet. The piano, surprisingly, doesn't repeat this music when it enters, but begins with its own highly individual phrases. In fact, the soloist traverses the entire movement without once playing these signature chords. In the same way, the piano's opening lines, as pure and unadorned as recitative, are not imitated by the orchestra. The relationship between soloist and orchestra had never before been so tense or complex. When Haydn turned pages at a performance some time after Mozart's death, Leopold Mozart boasted that this allowed him to appreciate the artful composition and interweaving as well as the difficulty of the concerto. Their uneasy interplay, sometimes accommodating, occasionally unyielding, is what carries this music into the realm of high drama. This is the first concerto with which Mozart so openly reveals not only the form's symphonic qualities, but its infinity with the world of opera as well. The piano alone begins the second movement, a serene romance that brings relief without completely banishing the tragic mood. In particular, an explosive G minor interlude, the noisy part with the fast triplets, as Leopold called it, recalls the unrest that came before and will soon return. When Leopold Mozart arrived in Vienna on February 10, 1785, the day before the premiere of his son's new D minor concerto, he noted that there was no time to rehearse the finale, since the parts were still being copied. Your brother did not even have time to play through the rondo, he wrote home to Nanerl, as he had to supervise the copying. The music shows no sign of haste, however. Charles Rosen even argues that this is the first concerto with outer movements so strikingly and openly related. Mozart's care and wisdom are evident everywhere. Once again, it's the unaccompanied piano that launches the argument, this time with unusual urgency. This isn't a conventionally cheerful rondo, but a highly charged, forceful conclusion to a tragic work. In its darkness and power, it anticipates the minor key finale of Beethoven's third piano concerto. Finally, just as the chilling D minor of Don Giovanni ends in the brilliance of D major, so too this drama ends in a radiant coda that is the equivalent of the tidy, happy ending the 18th century opera stage demanded. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 20. And now on to the Divertimento Suite from The Fairy's Kiss, music by Stravinsky, the performance time around 23 minutes. Igor Stravinsky caught his only glimpse of Tchaikovsky when he was just 11 years old. Stravinsky and his mother had gone to the Mariinsky Theater to hear Igor's father, the acclaimed bass Fyodor, sing in the 50th anniversary production of Glinka's Ruslan and Ludmila. During the first intermission, when they stepped from their box, his mother suddenly said, Igor, look, there is Tchaikovsky. As Stravinsky later recalled, I looked and saw a man with white hair, large shoulders, a corpulent back, and this image has remained in the retina of my memory all my life. When Tchaikovsky died two weeks later, Stravinsky was deeply moved. When he broke the news of Tchaikovsky's death to his fellow classmates, one of them asked what grade he was in. 
Igor would always remember the program book for a memorial concert he and his mother attended, which had Tchaikovsky's portrait framed in black on the cover. It may well have reminded him of the photograph signed by Tchaikovsky that hung in his father's studio, the most treasured object among many musical treasures. He also knew that in a letter to Najda von Meck, Tchaikovsky had praised the elder Stravinsky's singing. In fact, Igor's father was one of Tchaikovsky's pallbearers, the one who placed the wreath on the grave. Stravinsky had known and loved Tchaikovsky's music from childhood, certainly ever since he was taken to The Sleeping Beauty for the first time at the age of seven or eight. Some 30 years later, acting on a suggestion from Sergei Diaghilev, Stravinsky even orchestrated two passages from The Sleeping Beauty that Tchaikovsky had cut before the first performance. Stravinsky's next work, the opera Mavra, was dedicated to the memory of Tchaikovsky, Glinka, and Pushkin, and prompted by Diaghilev's Sleeping Beauty revival. And so, in 1928, when Stravinsky was asked to compose a ballet inspired by Tchaikovsky's music for Ida Rubinstein's new company, Stravinsky jumped at the challenge. The ballet was to be produced in November 1928 on the 35th anniversary of Tchaikovsky's death. For his subject, Stravinsky turned to Hans Christian Andersen, whose powerful and fantastic tales had been part of Stravinsky's childhood along with Tchaikovsky's music. He picked Andersen's The Ice Maiden, apparently finding in Tchaikovsky's creative life, branded by the muse's kiss, a parallel with the tale of a boy who is doomed by the kiss of the Ice Maiden. The ballet was described as an allegory. Having already breathed new life into music by Pergolesi in Polchinella, here Stravinsky decided to use music by Tchaikovsky, limiting himself only to works not written for orchestra. But where Polchinella fashioned something purely Stravinskyan out of old music he held in no particular regard, The Fairy's Kiss is a loving homage to his favorite Russian composer. Later, Stravinsky claimed he could no longer remember which music is Tchaikovsky's and which mine. But at various times, he identified, not always accurately, a number of Tchaikovsky's songs and piano pieces that he had borrowed. Lawrence Morton eventually narrowed the debt list to some 14 works. Stravinsky set to work with untiring enthusiasm. Once, when his train was stalled for four hours, he even sat in his compartment, quietly writing, determined to lose no time. He rented a room in a mason's cottage where he could work undisturbed, although the potent aroma of the family's lunch disrupted his thoughts every day at noon. The music was barely completed in time for the premiere, which the composer conducted on November 27, 1928. Stravinsky wasn't entirely pleased with Nijinsky's choreography. The public evidently shared his view, but he had been too busy finishing the music to check out the dancing. The music is prime Stravinsky, largely based on lesser Tchaikovsky. Only two Tchaikovsky works are used complete. The rest are excerpts. Most are taken from little-known songs and piano miniatures. Stravinsky's handling of borrowed material runs the gamut. 
He merely assigns instruments to the notes of Tchaikovsky's popular humoresque for piano, but much of the original music is so totally transformed that it's easy to understand Stravinsky's not remembering which music was whose. As early as 1931, Stravinsky approved playing excerpts from the 45-minute ballet score as a concert hall suite. In 1945, he finally settled on his own suite, which he called the Divertimento, cutting out nearly half the music, but including substantial chunks from the first three of the ballet's four scenes. In 1962, Stravinsky returned to Russia after nearly 50 years. The Stravinskys, along with Robert Kraft, arrived in Moscow on September 21st. On October 4th, they flew to Leningrad, where Stravinsky was met by Vladimir Rimsky-Korsakov, the latest son of the composer, who was then living in the apartment where Stravinsky had written The Firebird more than a half century before. On October 8th, Stravinsky conducted a concert of his own music. Before the performance, Stravinsky addressed the crowd, saying that he had attended his first concert in this hall 69 years ago. I sat with my mother in that corner, he said, pointing, at a concert conducted by Napravnik to mourn the death of Tchaikovsky. He then conducted music from The Fairy's Kiss. And here is a brief synopsis of the complete ballet. In scene one, the prologue, pursued by spirits in a storm, a mother is separated from her child, who is found and kissed by a fairy. A group of villagers passing by discover the abandoned child and takes him away. Scene two. Eighteen years later, the young man and his fiancée are taking part in a village fete. They join in the country dances. When his fiancée and the villagers have gone home, the young man is approached by the fairy disguised as a gypsy. After reading his hand and promising him great happiness in the future, she takes him to a mill. Scene 3. There, he finds his fiancée surrounded by her friends. The lovers dance together, but when his fiancée retires to put on her bridal dress, the fairy reappears disguised as the bride and carries him off to her everlasting dwelling place. Scene four, the epilogue, she then kisses him again, this time on the sole of his foot. A synopsis of The Fairy's Kiss and program notes by Philip Pusher on Divertimento from The Fairy's Kiss by Stravinsky. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.